We're starting a new series today where we are going to be reading someone else's mail. We are looking at the letter of 2 Thessalonians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica, Greece. This is a people that he came to know, a people that he acted as a spiritual father to, and we'll learn a bit more about their relationship as we go. We're going to spend three weeks looking at this letter, and if you have a Bible with you, it divides up nicely because there's three chapters. And listen, the chapters in the Bible aren't like inspired by God. They were put there hundreds of years later by scribes who were copying down the Bible, but it just makes it easier for us to keep track of where we are. But sometimes, like in this series, it divides up nicely in us being able to look at this letter chapter by chapter this week and over two more weeks. Now, why are we reading someone else's mail? Why are we spending time on Sunday mornings reading through this and unpacking it and looking at it together? Well, I think there are ways where this ancient letter is incredibly and pointedly relevant for us. First of all, because Paul is writing to a church who's experiencing a, a time where it's difficult for them to live as Christians. A time where, like, culturally and with those around them in their community, they're not looked upon well as followers of Jesus. He's also writing to a community that are a little bit weirdly obsessed with, like, end times, end of the world stuff. And if I've learned anything about people during the pandemic is that Christians, when things get weird, we spend a lot of time like, all right, end time stuff, like end of the world, what's going on? And so this letter addresses a church, sorting through that kind of stuff. And on the, in the third chapter, in the third week, we're going to look at Paul speaking very pointedly to the Thessalonians saying, listen, it's important for us to be people who work hard. It's important for us to be people who are willing to, to put in the effort and to, to not be those who, who are sitting on our hands. That our faith isn't something where we just lay on, on the, the side and don't get actively involved in the work that God wants us to. It's pointedly relevant. We're also reading this and working through it together because we have a conviction as, as followers of Jesus that the writings of the apostles in the New Testament are writings that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. That as Paul is writing this letter, the Holy Spirit is working through him in a way where these words carry an authority. And not just an authority to the first Christians who heard them. Like this letter is not written to us. But there is great benefit that we can receive by, by hearing what God was saying through Paul to the Thessalonians. God might speak to us through those words he spoke to them that the same spirit that inspired the words might illuminate the words to us in our reading and our studying of them together. So with that, let me pray as we dive into 2 Thessalonians. Holy Spirit, be among us. You who, who spoke through Paul, would you speak to us today? God, as, as we dive into these words, would we see what you have to say not only to the Thessalonians, but to our hearts, what it might mean for us to follow you faithfully, Jesus, in the 21st century, not just the first century, in Kings County and not just in Greece, that you would be inspiring us on into the great work that you've called us to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start right from the top. 
So if you've got a Bible app or a Bible, feel free to open that up and follow along. It's going to be up on the screen, but I just find having it open in front of me is a helpful tool to be able to kind of uh, see how things connect, where they fall together, etc. So I'm going to read the first couple of verses and we'll unpack them a little bit. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously this is a letter, and it looks like a letter. Like he's saying who it's to, who it's from. But we need to understand that Paul isn't just like, this isn't junk mail. This isn't like some random person sending a letter to people that he doesn't know well. In fact, Paul has a long-standing relationship with the Christians in this city. And to understand that, it's recorded in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 17, we see that, that Paul, who was a man who, who was a, a Pharisee, a devout Jewish follower of, of the law, he, he had a desire for Judaism to be this pure religion. And so anything that he saw that would kind of distort the purity of his interpretation of, of, of the Jewish law, he felt it was his job to eradicate it. So Paul, as, as this Pharisee, he spent a lot of his early years hunting down, arresting, and having Christians tried and executed for their faith, for their deviation from uh, traditional and historical Judaism of the day. Paul felt like this is what God had him doing. But Paul has this incredible encounter, right? In Acts chapter 9, I think it is, he, we read this account of Paul on his way to the city of Damascus where he had gotten permission to be able to arrest Christians there. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears to him on the road. Like this is after Jesus' resurrection, after he's ascended to heaven, and it's this crazy vision of Jesus that he has as he's traveling to Damascus. And he's faced with, he's faced with the resurrected Jesus. He's faced with this reality of this guy that I've been kind of trying to, to dismiss and his followers that I've been trying to persecute. He's here and he's confronting me. And so Paul goes from this guy who is confronting and arresting and trying to execute Christians to someone that God uses as one of the most profound mouthpieces for sharing the gospel and the good news of the resurrected Jesus in his time and place. Paul goes and he travels with friends and, and fellow missionaries like Silas and Timothy all around the Mediterranean world, starting churches, preaching the gospel, inviting people to follow Jesus and finding new life in him. And so in Acts chapter 17, we see that they arrive in a city called Thessalonians. I'll have a map up here, actually, just, just to kind of give you a frame of reference, right? Jerusalem, down here in the Holy Land. Thessalonica is up there, tucked away in the Aegean Sea, uh, up there in Greece. And so they've traveled through Turkey and up through to Greece. And this is what it says. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, I even wrote out pronunciations for those, and I stumbled over it, they came to Thessalonica, uh, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, three separate Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. 
This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And some Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas. He must have been hosting them in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond, and let them go. Sounds like a fun time in Thessalonica. But this, this gives us some context and an idea of what it was like for the early believers in this city. Like, they start talking about Jesus, and there was a riot that started. Like, the whole town goes up in arms about this, this civil unrest that is being pronounced by saying Jesus is king more so than Caesar. That Jesus is the Jewish Messiah for all people that you've been waiting for. The Thessalonians in their town were persecuted by both the Jews and the Greeks. Whether it was over fights over the law and interpretation of the Messiah or about arguing who's king, Caesar or Jesus. The thing is, too, that Paul, in his interaction with the Thessalonians, this isn't the first letter that he wrote to them either. It's called 2 Thessalonians because it's the second letter that he wrote to them. He knows them. He has a relationship with them. He helped start the church there and was with them in the midst of the persecution. But as he kind of moved on, and you can read on in uh, Acts 17 about him having to, like, flee town uh, in order to, you know, leave with his light he would write letters back to them upon hearing about what was going on. Paul, like like a a, a good father, almost, writes to these people because he's hearing about things that are going on, different false teachers that are coming in, or the persecution that they're experiencing. And and like a good father who wants his kids to kind of be be raised up and to be able to learn and stand on their own feet, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll let them run their course, but... But when things get to a point, he's like, okay, I need to step in. I need to send them a letter. Or I need to send Timothy to them, who's going to help straighten out things that are going on there. So this is the second time he's done this. And what we learn is that 2 Thessalonians, the second letter, was sent pretty quickly after the first one. There were some ongoing issues in Thessalonica. That he continued to to have to send these letters to them in light of, of what was going on, wanting to encourage them, wanting to give them a sense of hope in the midst of their persecution, wanting to help them sort through all their kind of like end times, end of the world stuff that they're got their heads stuck in. But he's writing like a good father, caring for this church, with the heart one who, who feels a responsibility for their well-being. Sometimes we forget that the letters, the parts of the New Testament that, that we have recorded for us, that they were written for a reason, right? 
that often these are letters in response to a crisis. There's something going on. It's not just, you know, casual literature for reading. There's a purpose for why it's written. And in us discerning that together and seeing how we can apply it to ourselves is going to make working through this book profitable for us. So Paul continues as he writes this letter and he begins his letter encouraging them because they are experiencing growth in the midst of the persecution that they're facing. That, and he, he shows them that growth in the midst of the difficulty that they're facing is bringing glory to God and it's also an incredible encouragement to other believers. Growth in the midst of difficulty brings glory to God and encouragement to other believers. I, I think I even have a slide that says that. Let's carry on with how he expresses this in the first chapter. He says, We ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. And all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you'll be worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. He's telling them, listen, I see that your faith is growing. I see that you guys are loving each other more and more, and that's strange in the midst of like things being uncomfortable for you. Like, let's be honest. For you and I, when things get difficult, sometimes we're tempted more to drift in our faith rather than to lean in. It's easier to say, oh, where's God in the midst of this? And to kind of like take a step back rather than to lean forward into what God has for us in moments of difficulty. I don't know about you, but it is harder to love one another in the midst of difficulty. Like, I don't know if you've been to a funeral lately, but there's something about the, the difficulty and grieving of funerals where sometimes that brings out the worst in families. That instead of loving one another in the way that we need at that moment, it actually can can bring to the surface a lot of the, the pain and difficulty and under-the-surface resentment that's there. Paul is pointing this out to them because it's miraculous, the fact that in the midst of their difficulty, the persecution and trials that they're facing, instead of leaning back and instead of having like discord and infighting with one another, they're leaning in in their faith and they're getting along even better. And he says, this is evidence that God is at work in you. The fact that you guys are growing through this difficulty shows me that God's judgment was just. Meaning, when God says that, that you're mine, that you're my child, that, that that actually is true and that's taken root in you. Some of you might remember the, the uh, parable that Jesus taught of the, the different soils and seeds, right? Where he talks about a farmer who plants seed in, in four different kinds of soil. One that's a fertile soil, and, and the, the seeds take root and they spring up. Another is a rocky soil where uh, the, the, the plants spring up quickly, but then they die out. 
Another soil is one where thorns grow up among them and choke out the plant. And the last is the the seeds scattered among the path and birds come and pluck away the seeds before they ever take root. Sometimes we think that in order to have that fertile soil, we need to have like the perfect life conditions in order for the gospel to take root and for us to have a flourishing life of faith. That's not what Paul's saying here. What he's saying is there is evidence of God being at work at you because what looks like should be rocky soil around you, what looks like there should be thorns coming out and choking you out, in fact, you guys are experiencing what looks like an incredible flourishing of the seeds bearing fruit in your life. And I think for some of us, myself especially, man, it is easy for me to lean out of conflict and try to avoid it, to lean out of difficulty and discomfort and avoid it. Because I feel like, oh, if I'm going to thrive, I need to avoid discomfort and, and, and avoid conflict. When actually that might be the fertile soil that God wants to bring about his work in me. In. He's commending them for that. And he's showing that, listen, the fact that this is taking place in your life, ought to, we ought to give God glory for that. He says, I thank God that I see this in your life. And he says, I'm telling all these other churches about what's going on here because even though conditions aren't ideal, even though things are difficult for you guys, the fact that you guys are facing it the way you are by the power of God is the encouragement that the other churches need to hear. That if God is stepping in and helping you guys, he can step in and help them too. When we are leaning and growing in the midst of trial and difficulty, that is evidence of the gospel taking root in our life and God's presence and work taking place. And some of you are experiencing difficulty and trial right now, and you feel like in the midst of, man, like trying to follow Jesus in the rocky soil of being in a marriage where, where your spouse doesn't give a care about any of this spirituality or Jesus stuff, and you feel that, that pressure and that trial and that difficulty, that, that other people see your faith and perseverance in that, and that's an encouragement for them that in the midst of their relationships, they can actually grow and flourish too. In the way that you have leaned into your faith in the midst of the diagnosis gives encouragement and spurs on the faith of others. To be able to say, all right, if God is able to do it for them, then whatever the doctor says at my next appointment, I know that he can be with me and help me grow in the midst of that too. In the midst of being in a workplace where everyone is celebrating exactly the opposite of what you feel like is is a life of following Jesus, the fact that God can help you grow in the midst of that kind of an environment gives encouragement to others who see you to say, all right, God can be with me in the midst of that as well. It brings glory to God and it encourages other believers. Man, are Ukrainian and Afghan brothers and sisters right now? The fact that they are persevering and continuing to gather to worship in the midst of Taliban and Russian troops, like that should be a deep encouragement to us. We've got it so easy, man. But if they can persevere by the grace of God, imagine what he is able to do 
for us in the midst of our moments where we feel like things are pressing in and difficult. We continue on where Paul, in the next section, he says, in moments of difficulty, cling to God's justice. He says, listen, you guys have been a great encouraging example, but he's giving more than just a pat on the back of, you guys are doing great. Here's a letter. He's actually giving them something as well to move forward with. He says, listen, I know it's hard. And in those hard moments, cling to God's justice. We'll continue to read what he says in verses 6 through 10. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who troubled you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. Anyone else feel uncomfortable reading this? Like these aren't easy words to digest and to hear. And, and I want to kind of clarify some of the language in here that maybe our English translations don't, don't fully convey. When it says that those who will be punished because they don't know God isn't like those who are like, oh, I've never heard of the guy. The way that the language in Greek is, is conveying is like those who don't acknowledge God's status or who he is. Like treat him as common rather than king, who don't acknowledge uh, God being God for who he is. And those who, who don't obey the gospel, it's talking about those, like, if Jesus is king, as they're proclaiming, then, then the proper response is, is to acknowledge his kingship and follow him as king. The reality is, for those who don't want to be with the king, the king will allow them to spend eternities apart from him. And he says that clearly. God is going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with the evil in our world. The problem is we all have sin and evil in our hearts. And so if God is going to deal with evil, he has to have a way of going about it. And he says repeatedly in the writings of Paul, in the teachings of Jesus, that if we have believed in Christ as King and as our Savior, then our sin is actually dealt with and judged on the cross of Christ and is not to be judged at the second coming when Christ returns and brings his justice. But make no mistake, Jesus is coming back. Part of the core statement of faith of Christians throughout the last 2,000 years is the belief that Jesus is coming back and his, his justice will prevail. Next week, Paul sorts out a few of those details, but he says, this should be a comfort for you in the midst of what you're experiencing. Not because of like, a, those bad guys are going to spend eternity apart from God but that God's justice is both a punishment for the guilty and an uplifting of the innocent and oppressed. That God's justice is going to make all things right. 
And so he's saying that God sees you in the midst of your oppression and persecution and what you're experiencing. And you may feel like the justice system around you is bent and broken and corrupt. You feel like you know you're innocent and other people know you're innocent, but you still get treated like you're guilty. But one day perfect justice is coming. One day you will be vindicated in your innocence. Take heart. The day is coming. I think of, like, if you look at the lyrics of, like, the the African spirituals, of the old hymns sung by African slaves and their descendants in North America, as, as they placed their hope in Jesus in the midst of their oppression and slavery, the lyrics tell of a great hope of the justice of God rather than the justice of the world around them. They were praying, come Lord Jesus. Vindicate the innocent and the oppressed. They prayed for God's justice to be upon the oppressor. That one day his justice will prevail. And so in the present, we trust in that justice too. It reminds me of Peter's words that he writes about Jesus in 1 Peter 2, where he talks about like describing the final moments of Jesus' life. And it says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. But when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly that one day God's justice will prevail and it will be the right call. Lastly, in the final section, Paul says, God is active. And he is active in helping our money be where our mouth is when it comes to following Jesus. He says this, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling." And that by his power, he may bring to fruition every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what I notice in this passage? Mark, if you don't mind just putting that up on the screen there. All of the, the verbs here are God acting that God may make you worthy, that by his power he may bring to fruition every desire for goodness. In fact, in this whole chapter, there is nothing that Paul is telling the Thessalonians to do. He's describing to them, God is persevering you. God's justice is our hope. God is active in bringing about the fruit in your life that's needed. So his response is to pray for them. Is to say, God, ultimately this is you and in your hands. Ultimately, you're the one who loves these Thessalonians even more than I do. Ultimately, God, you're the one who's going to be able to get them through the difficulty that they're facing and they're coming. God, you're the one who called them worthy and you're able by the power of your spirit to create in them new life and fruit so that they display that so that when Jason is brought before the, 
the, the city officials. And, 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 and a mob is rioting around in the midst of the injustice, and they're sent into courts or whatever, that they're not running their mouth off at them. That they're not following the impulse for revenge. So that, like Jesus, they're able to love their enemy. That's not something you and I do naturally. That is not a normal, natural impulse. That is a fruit of the Spirit at work in us that we pray that God brings to fruition in our life. And Paul was praying that for them. Listen, when you and I face difficulty, it is going to, be, it is going to show the work that God is doing in our life or not. Like, my prayer is that when we're squeezed, we show the fruit that God has brought about in our life. And so Paul prays that for them. God is the one at work. God is sustaining the Thessalonians. God's justice is their hope. God is actively bringing about the fruit in their lives. And so we pray like it depends on God. And when we pray for one another, we pray like Paul, not necessarily to take away the hard stuff but for God to be evident and tangibly present in the midst of the hard stuff. That, in fact, God showing up and helping us to persevere and giving us hope and to bring out fruit in us in the midst of difficulty might be the kind of witness where others be able to say, oh my goodness, there is something to this guy. That this Jesus that you're proclaiming actually has teeth. Like, it's, it's not just this, like, fairy tale idealistic stories that you're talking about. Just like as parents, like, we don't want to remove every single obstacle out of our kids' way. We want them, in facing their obstacles, to be able to develop character and courage throughout their lives. If we just remove every obstacle, that character and courage doesn't develop. So my prayer for us in reading this chapter and taking to heart what it says is that we might be reminded that God is the one who's active. In the midst of difficulty, in, in, in living under the pressure of, of the persecution or trials or difficulties that we might face, that we have a God who will sustain us. We have a God who offers us hope. We have a God who by His Spirit is transforming us to display Him in the midst of facing it. We're going to turn this morning to the table. And when Jesus gathered with His disciples around the table, He knew difficulty was coming. He knew that the road ahead of them was not going to be easy. But He offered them this bread and this cup, his body and blood. As one professor I had described as food for the journey. To remind them of what is true, remind them of what he's doing for them to help them push forward in what's ahead. So this morning, we're going to take communion. And... I would love for us in our reflection and, and praying through it 
as we prepare for it, to think of it as food for the journey ahead. That whatever we're going to face this week, whatever trials we're in the midst of, whatever pressure we're feeling right now, see this as, as God graciously reminding us what he's done for us, that he's going to be with us, that we actually have hope in the midst of it.